Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. I have a brief message from AnyScale, our sponsor for this episode. Reinforcement learning is gaining traction as a complementary approach to supervised learning with applications ranging from recommender systems to games to production planning. So don't miss Ray Summit, the annual user conference for the Ray Open Source Project, where you can hear how teams at Dow, Verizon, Riot Games, and more are solving their RL challenges with RLLib. That's the Ray Ecosystem's open source library for RL. Ray Summit is happening August 23rd and 24th in San Francisco. You can register at raysummit.org and use the code RAYSUMMIT22RL for a further 25% off the already reduced prices of $100 for keynotes only or $150 to add a tutorial from Sven. These prices are for the first 25 people to register. Now I can say from personal experience, I've used Ray's RLib and I have recommended it for consulting clients. It's easy to get started with, but it's also highly scalable and supports a variety of advanced algorithms and, and settings. Now on to our episode. Sai Krishna Gotipati is an RL researcher at AI Redefined, working on RL, multi-agent RL, human-in-the-loop learning, and he developed the world's first RL-based algorithm for synthesizable drug discovery. Uh, as a master's student at Mila, he worked on RL for active localization, board games, and character generation. Sai is also a international master in chess. Sai, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So can you tell us a bit more about your, your current focus areas? Uh, currently, I'm working mostly on uh, multi-agent RL, human-in-the-loop learning, and some of its applications in some industrial settings. Can you say a bit about the settings? Sure. I think it mostly relates uh, to uh, our product, which is Cogment. It's a multi-actor uh, framework. And so by actor, I mean the actor could be an AI agent or a human agent or a heuristic agent and so on. So it's especially useful in very complex ecosystems where multiple actors are uh, acting. And so we have multiple industrial clients that are using uh, Cogment for their products. Uh, for example, uh, we are working on a project with Talus for airport security where the idea is to defend the airport from uh, incoming drones or any other uh, objects and we have a two teams of uh, drones one is team defending the airport and the other is the one that's trying to attack the airport so as it as as a defense team uh, we need to develop uh, sophisticated algorithms against uh, different kinds of attacks and this is where uh, the teams within the defense team should learn to collaborate with each other at this at, and simultaneously launch an attack against the offenders. Yeah, that that's one of the application, for example. Wow. Okay. So not shying away from the hard problems in in multi-agent RL yeah. or or the uh, mm -hmm. safety critical settings either. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so we're going to hear more about Cogment uh, later on in our chat, and I look forward to that. So just looking through your background, it seems like you've had a few different chapters in your research career. I see early papers on SLAM and drug discovery and then computer vision and RL fundamentals. Can you give us a brief uh, idea like how you got to this point? During my undergrad, as part of my honors project, I started in the Robotics Research Center. I think it's now called uh, IIIT Robotics Lab. 
so at that time the lab was working on this Mahindra Rice challenge which is to design an autonomous uh, driving car for Indian roads so I started working on uh, various computer vision problems like uh, road sign or traffic signal uh, detection and recognition uh, potholes and speed breakers recognition and so on that sounds challenging. I just want, I'll just say I learned to drive in New Delhi and the <laughs> roads there are quite, if you want to test your uh, autonomous driving, that's got to be a really place, a good place for uh, a lot of tail events. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Hyderabad uh, roads are even more challenging. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, at, at that time, so this was back in 2015 or 2016. Uh, so at that time I was mostly using still traditional computer vision techniques. But that's also the time when I slowly got introduced to uh, deep learning. Uh, yeah, and then I started using deep learning first, first for the uh, recognition part and then also for the detection part. Uh, at, the, at the same time, I got an opportunity to work on this research project as well, which is uh, the 3D reconstruction of the vehicles. I worked on a very small part of the project at the time, which is the key point localization. That's when I got introduced to many of the deep learning frameworks at that time. Uh, I think PyTorch wasn't even released or not that mature at that time. Uh, I was dealing with CAFE at that time. And before CAFE, I was doing uh, deep learning on in MATLAB. So <laughs> those are fun times. Uh, yeah, uh, towards the end of my undergrad, uh, I got an admit uh, in Mila to work with uh, Liam Paul. Uh, so both are robotics labs basically uh, and the project I'll be working on isn't decided and I thought I would continue working on some fun and challenging robotics problems and yeah I explored a lot of uh, different problems in localization slam and so on and I finally got to work on the problem of active localization and yeah, I initially tried out the traditional methods for active localization and soon realized that uh, reinforcement learning is a very good fit uh, for this problem. So I started using reinforcement learning for active localization and that's how I got into uh, the reinforcement learning. At the same time, uh, yeah, I think this was in the beginning of 2018. I was also taking the reinforcement learning course at Michael where I got to work on some interesting assignments and projects. And yeah, uh, after uh, graduating from Mila, I started working in a drug discovery company uh, where again, uh, reinforcement learning is a very good fit for the problem I was working on then. And then now I'm at uh, AI Redefined where I think I, I, I now find uh, multi-agent RL and human loop are like more challenging and interesting problems to work on. What would you say are the holy grail problems or the long-term goals in, in your current focus areas? Uh, I think human in the loop learning is at, still at very early stages. Uh, we, we even don't have a proper benchmarks at this point. For example, for reinforcement learning, Atari is kind of considered to be a good environment to test different algorithms on, but we don't have any such ideal uh, algorithm to, to test human in the loop learning on. I mean, even the metrics uh, that we have to optimize aren't very clear because it's not just about maximizing a particular reward. We should also need 
took care about uh, the trust factor and i think as a first very uh, good challenge is to develop these benchmarks uh, develop the environments and try to optimize for these different metrics and yeah i think in 10 years we would have a very good uh, complex ecosystems where humans and ai agents can learn from each other trust each other and cooperate each cooperate with each other yeah i mean the whole idea of a benchmark for human in the loop seems so difficult to execute like how many times can you run it how much human time is it going to take how replicable would the results be with different humans exactly do you feel like there's progress is being made in that question or is it are people kind of kicking the can down the road a bit I've seen some multi-agent RL papers will focus on how other RL agents or other types of automated agents will respond or react but but it doesn't seem like there's any clear way to to automate yeah. a human response I mean the whole point is that the human responds very differently than any machine ever would so how how could you ever put that in a loop uh, in terms of like running huge amounts of hyperparameter sweeps or anything like that yeah, that is a very uh, challenging question. And uh, we are kind of working on a small part of that uh, right now uh, on the Hanabi project where we are trying to have uh, humans play simultaneously, humans play against other agents and train agents in such a way that they can learn to uh, collaborate with all the humans. Okay, and then we're going to talk about that Hanabi paper um in a few minutes. So I, I just saw an announcement a few days ago that, that Mila, the Research Institute in Montreal, and your employer, AI Redefined, have a partnership. Can you mm -hmm. uh, say a bit more about AI Redefined and its mission and the and the partnership with, with Mila? And wh what stage is AI Redefined at with, with its, sounds like really ambitious work? Yeah, uh, so, so AI Redefined uh, started out around 2017. Uh, it's based in Montreal and its mission, I think, in my own words, uh, is to develop uh, complex ecosystems where humans and AI agents can, as I was saying, learn uh, from each other or collaborate with each other and trust each other. Uh, yeah, so I think that's a grand goal uh, that we have. And uh, we are kind of working on uh, multiple uh, projects with uh, Mila researchers, for example, the one with uh, Professor Sarachandra's group on Hanabi. And we are looking forward to working on more such projects with other Mila researchers as well and test out the actual potential of Cogment. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about the Cogment paper. That is Cogment Open Source Framework for Distributed Multi-Actor Training, Deployment, and Operations. Uh, and that's with uh, authors AI Redefined and yourself, uh, as well as co-authors. Yeah. So you said a little bit about uh, Cogment. So it's really about multi-agent uh, systems, and is it really about uh, learning in real time or inference in real time? Or what is the, can you tell us more about the settings that Cogment is best for? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a multi-agent system. It's more of a multi-actor system. Uh, yeah, as I was saying, actor could be an AI agent or a human or a heuristic agent or basically any other actor. It can be used for even normal, simple, single agent uh, reinforcement learning algorithms, but there I guess you won't see any uh, advantages compared to the other existing frameworks. Uh, where Cogment really shines is in these multi-actor systems. Uh, 
because you can have uh, multiple actors simultaneously acting in an environment uh, doing very uh, different things for example uh, imagine all the ways uh, a human can interact with an ai agent right uh, an ai agent can reward uh, the human at every time step or vice versa and similarly one agent can set a curriculum and the other agent can follow the curriculum or even simpler algorithms like behavior cloning so these are all different ways in which a human can interact uh, with the ai agent cogment is really suited for all these kinds of uh, use cases uh, for example one simple demonstration would be in the case of a simple gym environment like lunar lander where an ai agent with its randomly initialized policy starts playing the game and human can intervene at any time step in the middle of the episode and the AI agent can learn uh, both from its own samples and from the human interventions. So instead of continuously interacting with the agent, hu uh, human can just sit back and relax and only intervene when he thinks that agent is acting very stupidly, right? And I think this is one of the efficient uh, uses of human time. One of the projects was on this airport security that we are working with uh, Talus and uh, Matthew Taylor and uh, Matthew Gustel from University of Alberta. Uh, so the other uh, collaboration we are having is with Confence.ai, which is I think like kind of consortium of uh, uh, multiple French industries and labs. And uh, we are working on this uh, specific uh, case of hyperparameter optimization uh, guided by humans. Yeah, so basically allowing the humans to explore the space of hyperparameters so that they can end up with the final optimized parameters that they want. One other uh, project, interesting project is uh, with this major player in training simulation. I think I can't reveal the name, uh, but the project is uh, basically in a traffic uh, controller and pilot training where you have multiple aerial vehicles that are queued to land at uh, different landing spots or different landing destination and then you receive an emergency request from a different pilot and so how should this uh, ATC react uh, so that they can reroute the existing aerial vehicles and also help this new training pilot uh, land safely. We also have this other collaboration with the renewable energy company uh, where the goal is to basically manage uh, the energy grid or to decide when to sell or store the energy in the grid. Uh, it's basically an optimization problem with RL, but we could, however, have a human in the loop with an operator actually controlling uh, the decisions. And you can also have different kind of risk profiles uh, that are controlled by the humans. So how do you think about the use of AI and RL in safety critical situations? Because it, it seems like, especially with the aircraft traffic controller case, uh, I guess, and the, uh, the power case too, yeah, so I think uh, it's important to have a uh, human in the loop and kind of have a uh, human as human have a final say in these systems. And yeah, that's kind of the primary focus that AI yeah, redefined as well. Okay, but you think the, the human and the AI together can make better decisions and, and safer decisions uh, than the human on its own? Is that the, the goal here? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, there are some complex uh, planning that needs to be underdone. Uh, so which it, it 
in a time critical situations human might not be able to do so agent will do all those uh, hard work very quickly and then it will suggest what it thinks is the best action and if it seems like a sensible uh, action that is not dangerous then the human can approve that action basically based on the human approval or disapproval the agent can also learn from learn further from these kinds of feedback so it, it would be a continually learning system as well is it is it very general or or is it more focused on on policy off policy offline is it like model based model free is it all of the above or is it very is it kind of focused on certain aspects of the on the IRL side it's all of the above uh, so especially this we have this uh, thing called retroactive rewards where the even the rewards can be uh, given much later than when the time steps or the episode has actually happened so this gives rise to like wide range of uh, applications as well for example when ai agent is acting in an environment human might not be as quick to give the reward right so it's useful in those cases and what stage is cognizant at and is it built is it built on other tools or is it kind of a, a greenfield project or are you, are you extending something here or is it really uh, starting from scratch it's it's mostly a greenfield project it's based on microservice architecture i think that's like just like a concept uh, of microservice architecture there are multiple versions of cognizant i think the first version came out about one and a half year ago or something uh, recently released uh, Cogment 2.0, which is more uh, academic oriented and which is more friendly to the researchers as well. And on top of Cogment, uh, we released uh, something called Cogment Verse as well, which is a collection of a bunch of reinforcement learning agents and environments like simple gym environments, petting zoo, uh, procedural uh, generation environments, and so on. So, so that it would be easy for any actual academic researcher to get started and do a couple of experiments with Cogment. I guess in the case where a human takes over, are, mm -hmm. are you labeling those, those samples as expert demonstrations or are they, are they considered differently? Yes, uh, they can be stored. Uh, they can be stored to a different replay buffer, or they can be stored on the same replay buffer. It depends on how we code. Uh, what is your role uh, in in Cogment project? I'm mostly uh, developing on Cogment first, which is uh, implementing and benchmarking different uh, reinforcement learning or multi-agent RL algorithms uh, with different kinds of environments, and then we also use uh, Cogment for all of our research projects ongoing research projects cool okay do you want to uh, move on to the asymmetric self-play paper yeah yeah so i think this is a paper from OpenAI um that you weren't a co-author on but you found it interesting for for our discussion i think the idea here is to solve uh, goal conditioned uh, reinforcement learning usually it's a very sparse reward problem and hence it's a very challenging uh, task to solve uh, so what these guys do is they introduce a uh, new kind of agent, they call it allies and Bob. So allies being like a teacher agent uh, that acts out in the environment and reaches a particular state. And then the Bob agent is supposed to reach that uh, state reached by the allies. Th this way, the, the problem of sparsity can be kind of uh, overcome. So this paper was asymmetric self-play for automatic goal discovery in robotic manipulation yeah. with authors OpenAI, Matthias Klappert, uh, et al. So why, fundamentally, why do you think that splitting the learning problem in this way using two separate agents, why is that somehow better? 
Like we see different algorithms that use, that split the learning problem in this type of way or in related ways. Why is that somehow better? Like, is there some reason why it should make sense to do that? It's almost like they're setting up a game, right? Yeah, that's so if, if a single agent is acting out, out in the environment, the reward is very sparse, uh, especially in cold condition environment. So I'm thinking of a robotic manipulation task where all the end, end locations has to exactly match. Yeah, maybe even after 100 time steps, you might not be able to reach uh, that location. And it's hard for any typical RL algorithms to learn from such kind of sparse rewards. So using introducing this new agent will encourage exploration. It will encourage the first the uh, teacher agent or the LS agent to go to the places it hasn't been to before because if it's revolving around the same area, then the Bob agent can reach those locations and the teacher will be negatively rewarded. Uh, so teacher is always in incentivized to explore more and consequently the student is uh, incentivized to follow the teacher. I think this way the exploration is much faster and the at the end of the day the agent can generalize much better even to, to the unseen goals. So but why do you think that is that it that it works better with two agents? Like you could imagine another formulation where we just had one agent and we said okay we're gonna give some curiosity, uh, intrinsic curiosity to this agent and it's going to do its best to explore everywhere and then it's going to and then we're going to do some kind of hindsight replay thing to say uh we'll just pretend you were trying to find these goals it seems like that maybe could work as well or wh wh why why do you think this is better this way yeah the, those could uh, work as well but i think one uh, kind of issue or challenge i see with this uh, intrinsic reward based methods or information theoretic based rewards curiosity based rewards and so on is they don't necessarily align with your actual goal you are especially incentivizing the agent to just uh, increase its curiosity or optimize some kind of information theoretic metric which might not be relevant to your actual goal of uh, solving a goal condition problem but uh, on the other hand this uh, teacher student approach is kind of uh, incentivizing the agent to reach a wide uh, range of goals uh, in a much quick uh, fashion so like the training procedure is closer to the test time procedure like it seems like the train the teacher is here training for the similar behavior that we actually want to see yeah right so if we're if, if it maybe it's just using some kind of noisy exploration then it's not going to be um really optimized for quickly getting to any specific goal because it, it never behaved that way really in, during training time yeah correct yeah all right well anything else you want to say uh, about this paper i think we've seen that general idea you know show up in, a lot of times in terms of um goal selection and a separate agent trying to reach that goal as a as a strategy for self-play yeah, so, so I think one uh, other interesting thing they did in this paper is uh, add a behavior cloning loss to the student uh, training. So usually we have seen multiple approaches before uh, where we have a goal uh, generating agent and another agent that's trying to reach the goal. But these goal generating agents are usually uh, some VAEs or GANs and so on 
but in the case of this asymmetric self-play paper uh, the teacher agent also actually acts in the environment and reaches that position what that means for the student agent is in case the student finds the goal too hard to reach uh, then the student can actually learn from the behavior cloning of the teacher i think that uh, really helped in much faster training but do we have a chicken and egg problem like why how does the teacher know how to get there i actually didn't follow that part how does the teacher know how to get there so initially teacher moves completely randomly so both the teacher and the student agent starts out completely randomly but once the teacher gets to a certain location and if the student fails to reach there uh, for the first time then it's good the teacher agent gets rewarded in the second episode as well if the teacher reaches the same spot but now the student has learned how to reach that place so the student reaches that goal and the teacher will be negatively rewarded so now the teacher realizes that okay the student can reach these goals now i should further expand my space and it's inten- uh, it's incentivized to explore more so what kind of settings do you think are most suitable for this uh, i'm thinking of a real world application in the context of industrial robots for example in the kitchen robots or in some uh, factory settings and so on those manipulator arms has to be trained to reach uh, different kinds of poses so I think during its uh, training phase uh, it's ideal if they were trained in this manner we have uh, one uh, agent one teacher agent uh, trying to do multiple uh, trying to reach multiple locations but it could also have multiple student agents trying to reach the same uh, goal pose okay and and do you think this is really makes sense in simulation and then using some to real or like literally doing all of this in in IRL in the real world yeah i think that's always a complex uh, question it uh, depends on the uh, specifics uh, but yeah uh, doing it in the simulation first and then sim to real transfer should work Okay, so let's move on to a paper that you have currently under review at a conference. Uh, and, I, and I won't say the conference name, but it's a yep. big, well-known conference. The paper is called <laughs> Do As You Teach, A Multi-Teacher Approach to Self-Play in Deep Reinforcement Learning. So can you give us a basic idea what's what's going on in this paper, Sai? Yeah, so, so we have uh, seen this asymmetric self-play paper and uh, we implemented it and then... Uh, notice that it's 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 working well but uh, not as good as we expected so we, then we were thinking of what kind of improvements uh, we can make to that and one issue we noticed is that there is kind of lack of uh, diversity in how the teacher is setting the goals it is exploring but it is kind of exploring mostly in one direction uh, considering considering grid grid world example and the teacher is setting goals in it's it's still challenging goals but uh, it's setting goals in only one direction so i think yeah that's the basis for our approach so we believe that we need multiple teachers uh, to set diverse goals for that could also help in faster learning of the student agent and also better uh, better generalization and where does the stochasticity come from the randomness in the teachers uh, it's random initialization it's random initialization of the networks and then they act all differently uh, because they are incentivized based on whether the student has reached the goal or not you could get away with one teacher if the distribution was what you wanted but you're saying you don't get yeah, a, exactly. the right distribution from one yeah. And that's because, so I, I just wonder what the other approach would be like. Is there some way to fix 
is there any alternative to fix the distribution? Because what I think what we're saying is the distribution from any one teacher is just not uh, distributed, basically not evenly yeah. distributed. So is there some way to make it even, evenly distributed or there's just no way? And this is this uh, multi-teacher is a, is a kind of a approach to overcome that problem? I mean, we thought of other approaches, for example, adding a diversity specific uh, metric and so on. Uh, but I think they are really uh, dependent on the environment or particular task at hand and not uh, really generalistic uh, general algorithms. Uh, and I think there are some other ways you could do it. For example, uh, adding uh, goals to the replay buffer that are only diverse. So you let the teacher agent generate all these goals, but store those goals in the replay buffer that are explicitly different from these goals that are already stored. But these are also computationally expensive. And how do you consider a difference between goals? Like, do you have, have some idea of distance between the goals? Is that in terms of steps to get there? Or how do you think of difference between goals? Uh, th that's another uh, challenge, actually. You can't, uh, you don't have any specific metric or distance between goals. If you are acting in a grid world, then it's clear. But again, it's usually specific to the environment you are acting in. Which is why I think this uh, multi-teacher approach is very general. Uh, it's not computationally intensive and it gives much better results. And it also shows that we are actually generating uh, much diverse goals. And are some of the teachers uh, winning, like are the teachers competing amongst themselves too? Like are there kind of losing teachers and winning teachers? It's possible that particular teacher can always get in some kind, can get stuck in some kind of local minima. This uh, you have this danger, especially in the case of uh, single teacher, right? It's always possible that it can always get stuck somewhere, but using multiple teachers kind of solves this issue. This issue as well. It also depends on the complexity of the environment. Uh, so if the environment is not complex enough, there is no point in having multiple teachers because all the teachers would be generating goals around the same region where the student had already reached that region and the teachers are getting are not getting incentivized anymore well i love the concept and i love the parallel to the real world i i think of uh every guest on this show as a as a teacher to me i learn from every <laughs> guest and yeah. it's great to have multiple teachers because every teacher has their own distribution of areas that they are more interested in and uh, yeah. so to get a diverse scope is, is actually a really nice treat. So in this case, mm -hmm. there's uh, in this paper, there's students, teachers, and I think there's also intern agents. Can you tell us about that? What is the uh, what is the intern about and what are, what are their roles? So once we let the teacher agents generate these goals and the student learns from those goals, we also wanted to see if these generated goals are of use at all. So we started calling this new agent as intern agent. Uh, so the intern doesn't have access to the teacher's trajectories. They only have access to the teacher's uh, goals. Essentially, they can't use something like behavior cloning laws or other imitation learning methods. The only way they are allowed to uh, learn is based on this curriculum of goals. And we have observed that uh, this curriculum of goals set by the teachers is much better compared to a random uh, set of goals. And also, if you increase the number of teachers, uh, the diversity of the goals generated increases. And also, it helps the intern learn much faster. 
I think you can also kind of draw the real life parallel to, to this one as well. That even if you don't have access to the complete uh, lecture, but if you just have access to some references and so on, you could still learn from those references. But those references has to be accurate and useful and not just arbitrary. So this reminds me of something I love talking about, which is the paired system. It's a way of curriculum design. So is there something similar to paired going on here? Or can you talk about the relationship uh, between those two ideas? Yeah, the, they're very related. So our work can be kind of seen as a specific instance of the broader problem of these emergent ecosystems where uh, you have one agent let's call it again a teacher agent that's uh, generating increasingly complex environments and the actual reinforcement learning agent that has to uh, solve this whatever the environment the teacher agent throws at it right uh, so we can see kind of this uh, goal generating teacher uh, and the student agent as a specific instance of that where instead of generating these complex environments we are only restricting the gener uh, generation to a goals inside a specific environment all those algorithms that are applicable in those emergent ecosystems are applicable here as well uh, broadly speaking for example I, I have seen approaches that use like i think uh, evolutionary uh, search or genetic algorithms for these kinds of teacher agents how do you uh, represent these goals are they just states that you show the agency i want you to get into the, into this state or how do you represent the goal yeah so we have tried this approach on two environments uh, one is fetch uh, and the other is a custom driving simulator yeah in both the cases we we represent the position as xy and yeah we could try other things for example as a bitmap representation if it's a grid world kind of setting so states as opposed to not like observations like are these are the robot arms? I think you're talking about a robot arm setting. Is that right? Uh, a gym, a simple gym version of that. And so in that case, is it using proprioceptive observations? That's like the state variables of the positions and angles of the arms, or is it more an observation, like a image of the image of the outside of the robot, or what? How how does that work? Uh, no, no, it's not an image. Uh, the goal would uh, just be encoded as the goal position that the arm has to reach, like x y. The actual state is the different uh, the position or the velocities of the hand. I see. So, what does the intern add? Is it intern like an additional experiment, or does it add to, to make it? Does it actually make the learning better? It it doesn't add to the actual uh, student teacher training. It's it's an additional experiment to show the utility of the goals generated by the teachers. So, what kind of problems um, are best suited for this type of, of approach? Do you think? So we are essentially solving uh, goal-conditioned RL here. There are a wide variety of applications for goal-conditioned RL. Yeah, I think as we were discussing this, industrial manipulator robots or even the medical uh, robots and so on. Cool. Okay, do you want to uh, move to the next paper here, Continuous Coordination? So this paper is from ICML 2021. Uh, the title mm -hmm. is Continuous Coordination as a Realistic Scenario for Lifelong Learning. And this is uh, Nikoi as author, plus co-authors. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I wasn't involved uh, when the paper was being published. Uh, so this is something I believe that that could be a good uh, setup for testing the capabilities of uh, Cogment. So in their paper, they established this uh, lifelong uh, learning setup uh, with multiple agents. And we are currently working with uh, these authors. Uh, 
to have humans in the loop to have human agents uh, learn to cooperate with the ai agents and vice versa so hanabi is a quite unusual game uh, and i think that's why it comes up in these settings um, it has some some very unusual properties can you can you talk about uh, about that about hanabi and why it's a why it's a good candidate yeah it's a very challenging uh, multiplayer like 2 to 5 players uh, cooperative card game uh, so if humans actually play the game for the first time they would never win uh, yeah i myself played the games multiple times and every time a player changes your entire strategy changes and you kind of have to start everything from the beginning uh, because the players really need to establish uh, some kind of implicit connection or strategy uh, of what they're doing. Uh, so the game is basically every player can see every other player's cards except his own cards and at every time step you have you can, you can choose to do multiple uh, actions. Uh, the final goal is to so the colors are basically numbered one to five and they're colored and the goal is to drop the cards in such a way that uh, they are arranged in increasing order from one to five and across all colors so yeah it's a very challenging thing to do and uh, you could uh, choose to give out hints to the other players or you can choose to drop the card or you can choose to play the card there are a very limited uh, number of information tokens so you can't keep uh, giving hints forever there is a very limited number of hints that you could give so i mean many games especially card games have partial information as part of the game uh, and then mm -hmm. we have that here too of course why yeah. is it why is it uh, different here what what makes the partial information here uh, different than say in blackjack or any other game we might play i think the cooperative aspect is important one here uh, the goal is for all the players to play collectively so that they could all either all win or all lose and so this acts like a good uh, benchmark for teaching agents to collaborate with each other or having bringing humans in the loop and teaching agents to cooperate or collaborate with humans so that is unusual i think most card games are about winning uh each person winning and not collaborating it's more competitive uh i guess there's there's games like bridge where there's teams but uh mm -hmm. this idea of all all being on the same team but missing yeah. this crucial information is really interesting it also seems to me a bit artificial in the sense that um this game is only fun because you can't say hey sai you're carrying a yellow two and a red three I, i'm not allowed to say that to you right as part of the rules of the game but yeah. as humans that's trivial we would it, it's it's a strange situation because normally we could just say our communication is so good we could just easily clear up the situation and win mm -hmm. together and so somehow we've uh, we've this game has added this artificial constraint. We, we you cannot communicate. Uh, you have to really limit your communication bandwidth. Couldn't we short circuit the whole challenge just by letting communication flow freely, or no? Uh, no. So because uh, in in real in realistic settings, you can of course communicate in natural language, but I think that adds a whole lot of complexity. And uh, at this point, or at the current uh, state of research of NLP, I don't think we can. Uh, trust the systems to well so i think that's why it's important to constrain on what the agents are allowed to communicate at this point but given uh, the these limited communication capabilities that we deem are perfectly safe can this can they learn to 
can they learn useful cooperative behaviors? That's a very good challenge to have. I mean, we don't have to constrain the agents to speak in natural language. Like maybe they exchange a vector or something, uh, a learned vector. They could do a learn to communicate type thing. But that would be against the rules yeah. as well, right? We don't want people yeah. exchanging vectors with each other. Then the Hanabi doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I think the point of this is to see how well they can learn to cooperate. It's to, they, to have challenging cooperative game. We can, of course, change the rules and make it easy. But I think that won't be challenging. So, so yeah, I can explain the concept of uh, this paper. So you, you have the Hanabi game. So what uh, these guys do is uh, they first train a bunch of uh, self-play agents, around 100 of them, uh, so that they can uh, get better by playing with themselves. And then they sample randomly sample few of these trained agents and make them play with each other so that they can learn the cooperative behaviors. And then in the final test phase, they again sample a bunch of agents and that weren't uh, chosen before or that did not play with each other before. And then they make them play with each other and then see how well it works in the context of a zero-shot coordination. Uh, so what we are currently uh, trying to do or extending this work is to have uh, humans human agent play with this bunch of trained agent and this is not just the challenge for the ai agent but it's also a challenge for the bunch of human agents uh, to learn to cooperate with these trained agents as the as the trained agents keep changing uh, it's also important to continuously adapt to your new opponents but also remember how you have performed with your old uh, old partners not opponents but partners and we saw things like population-based training which i think was used in starcraft where there was many types of strategies and and yeah. um, to nail things down to keep things from sliding all over yeah in strategy space they had to nail things down by having all these fixed agents and then you keep growing the population yeah. so i mean it seems like this approach has some things in common with that Although yeah. the, the random, I mean, I think they went a little further maybe with the population-based training in terms mm -hmm. of really keeping track of um, which agents were dominating which and, and mm -hmm. really focusing on training on the agents that were still a challenge mm -hmm. um, so, that, so that they could get the best ranks possible to be efficient mm -hmm. with that. So I wonder, is, there, is this the same type of setting? Like, like would population-based training also be applicable here? Is this kind of an alternative to that? Or how do you see the relationship between those two things? Yeah, basically the approaches that were used uh, there can be used here as well. Uh, I think the Hanabi is basically kind of a simpler version of the game where we don't have any of those additional complexities of, let's say, I don't know, vision or other kinds of representations. The representation here is simple and the core task here is just to learn the abilities of cooperation. You know, um, these types of games require a really good memory. Is that true? Or that, that was Stratego, actually. Someone was saying that about Stratego, mm -hmm. which is another game with a lot of uh, partial information and... yeah. And the idea and the, and the comment was about the fact that, well, computers can trivially memorize any amount of, of data. So does that make these games less um, interesting for testing algorithms on because the computer can just remember every comment? Whereas for a human, they might uh, start losing track of the hints over time. Is that a factor here or not? Not so much. So in strategy, uh, Stratego is basically a two player uh, game, right? So one could always kind of try to 
memorize most of the things whereas in the case of hanabi you have uh, agents as well that are uh, changing so it's not uh, trivial to memorize of course in in the context of self play it's easy to memorize like if the agent is playing with itself then uh, which is happening in the first phase of the training then it's easy to learn but again that is being challenged by the next phases of training where these agents are made to play against with the uh, play alongside other agents and uh, i think uh, this is where the ability of cogment also really shines where you have the multiple actors uh, acting out in the environment where these actors can either be the trained agents or uh, the human agents right so this is one natural fit that we found for uh, cogment great so let's move on to the next paper here which is learning to navigate the synthetically accessible chemical space using reinforcement learning with uh, first author yourself and uh, Satarov and with co-authors. I'm really excited about this paper. I remember this um, back from ICML, I think mm -hmm. it was. And uh, I think that's where I met you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I wanted to have you on the show largely because of this paper and all, and because I just, uh, I thought you were great to talk to and you had such interesting views on, on on the work that you were doing so mm -hmm. um so yeah this is this is kind of the paper that uh, grabbed my attention um so tell us tell us about this this exciting paper here uh what did you do with this work yeah so the challenge uh, was to generate molecules that are actually synthesizable so at that time what people used to do before this paper was that uh, so the molecules are usually represented as a string or as a graph so they use different kinds of GANs, VEs or even uh, reinforcement learning based methods to generate different kinds of uh, uh, this graph structures or the strings and so on uh, but once they are generated and, and they're obviously optimized uh, for the reward that we wanted uh, but once these are uh, generated there is no guarantee that any of these are actually synthesizable uh, yeah so, so that's the challenge uh, we were trying to uh, overcome then uh, then our approach was basically instead of uh, searching in the space of the structures we should actually search in the space of uh, the chemical reactions so we would start with a bunch of uh, chemical reactants uh, choose one of them and make it react with one other uh, reactant you get a product and then choose another reactant you get one more product and so on repeat this process until you get satisfying reward or basically optimize in this particular uh, space so how does the chemistry part work in terms of having the data in place is there databases with these these chemicals and these reactions and how it would transform your molecule or how does how does that work yeah so for the reactants uh, there is this database called enamine data sets it contains about 150,000 uh, molecules so that's our initial uh, starting database and then for chemical reaction we have uh, something called uh, reaction templates which basically say that what uh, reactive parts in any of the reactants and how they react with each other to obtain a particular product just corresponding to those reactive part and what are the carbon string attached to the rest of the molecules stays the same way and i think a smarts is kind of way to uh, represent these and we have uh, libraries like RDKit that does uh, that computes most of these things. 
I mean, this this is kind of implying a, a a giant search tree. Maybe not that not that dissimilar from a game tree. But I guess the branching factor is is very huge, and the depth is very large. So you can't explore the whole tree. Is that is that the story? Uh, exactly. Yeah. So you could you you can't have normal any kind of research or other heuristic methods to search this space. Uh, that's why uh, we needed uh, reinforcement learning. Even for uh, reinforcement learning, uh, space of hundred and fifty thousand reactants is uh, very huge so at first uh, we choose something called reaction template there are about 49 of them and once you choose a specific reaction template uh, the number of reactants you can choose uh, decreases from about 150,000 to about 30,000 on average again this is on an average but for, for a specific template it could be as low as 50 or as high as 100,000 uh, so it really depends so even to compute or yeah to find the reactant in the space of 30,000 reactants is uh, still very hard task for a reinforcement learning agent. So what we did is uh, we predicted the action in uh, continuous space and then mapped it to uh, the discrete space using the KNN method or just f computed the first nearest neighbor. So we predicted the property, instead of predicting the number, a discrete number from 1 to 150,000, we predicted the properties of a molecule in a continuous space. And we pre-computed uh, the all the properties of all these 150,000 reactants beforehand so that we can directly use the nearest neighbor method uh, to compute uh, the actual reactant that we want. So what is the reward uh, design here? Uh, yeah, so, so the drug discovery community uh, works on a specific uh, set of benchmarks. Uh, one of them is called QED, which is basically a drug likeness score. So how likely that the molecule uh, you generated is good to be a drug. And then you have a penalized log p-score, which uh, is kind, it's kind of related to water solubility, I believe. And then uh, you have uh, other uh, methods. For example, let's say you want to invent a drug to cure HIV. Then what uh, you do is you develop some QSAR uh, model. So you know what a HIV uh, target is. And then you have a existing a very small database of uh, molecules and how it reacted to that particular HIV target. So you train uh, some models using some supervised uh, method uh, to obtain a reward model. So when you when you get a new molecule, you pass your molecule through this uh, reward model and obtain a particular scalar value. So these are called uh, QSAR models. And in that paper, uh, we did it against three HIV-based targets. Okay, so it's based on the experience of how other drugs, how effective past drugs have been? Yeah, not necessarily drugs, but any kind of uh, molecules. Because, yeah, you, you, basically your training data shouldn't be biased, right? So it shouldn't be just be biased with only the useful uh, molecules. It should also have some useless molecules so that uh, the score can be predicted accurately. So how do you represent the, the chemicals internally? Uh, so, the, so the molecules can be represented in uh, different ways. Uh, the people who work with smile string, uh, they represented it in uh, string converted to the one hot vector and then embedding and so on. In this paper, if I remember correctly, we considered a few representations. Uh, 
there is ecfp4 uh, which kind we, so these are all vectors ecfp4 is uh, is a vector that that contains information of the graphical structure of the molecule and then uh, we have something called maccs or maacs which is a binary vector uh, that tells you the presence or absence of uh, different uh, features of the molecule and then uh, we have something called multi-set uh, which contains several features i think there are about 200 such features and we handpicked 35 of uh, them to use as a representation so we experimented with uh, all these kinds of representations and i think at the end what worked out is ecfp features as the input because we want uh, robust representation as input and then this multi set the 35 features from multi set as the output so these are established uh, standard representations yeah i wonder if you've been following the uh, alpha fold work at all and i know that was that was for protein folding very different space yeah but i wonder if um if you think those two lines of work have something in common or are going to overlap at some point no, uh, I think they're uh, very uh, different approaches. That alpha fold is mostly a supervised uh, learning algorithm, but uh, yeah, having the ability to uh, predict uh, the protein structures has a lot of use cases in drug discovery, but not. Uh, I don't think it's related to this work. These drugs are not proteins generally, right? But but they they could they could affect proteins. Yeah, so they basically react uh, with the proteins. So one, I think the way to see it is if you have an accurate structure of the protein, then you could probably predict its reactive properties. So this could probably help in the reward uh, function design that we were talking about earlier. Instead of just uh, learning from the uh, from the existing database of how different molecules interacted with a particular protein target, probably the protein structure can also help in other ways of uh, reward design. So I see this paper is steadily ac accumulating citations. Are, are, are people building cool things on top of this that you're aware of? Yeah, I think so. I think what this uh, paper opened up is like kind of a new uh, chemical space for people to experiment on. So it need not uh, just be a reinforcement learning. So I think I've seen a few papers where people are using the genetic algorithms or this uh, evolutionary algorithms uh, instead of RL for exploring the same kind of chemical uh, space and then people were uh, trying out different representations I think graphical representation is uh, very attractive and I think I've seen one or two papers doing that and then people can also uh, they also tried I think learning the inverse uh, graph so we are just doing forward synthesis right so people also tried to do the retro synthesis based on the forward synthesis so they tried to train the inverse uh, network as well yeah i think a uh, very important uh, challenge is uh, multi-objective optimization because in drug discovery you just don't want to optimize for one particular score uh, your generated molecule uh, should fit in a specific profile for example it should have a particular drug likeness score but it should also have particular water solubility levels i don't know particular different profiles that are not harmful to a human body basically so it's essentially a multi-objective optimization problem and i think a couple of papers have started dealing with that based on this new chemical space 
Awesome. That must be very gratifying for you to see as a researcher. Yeah, definitely, yes. Okay, so coming back to chess, has your chess background uh, influenced your approach to AI, do you think? So, uh, not so much, I think, but in, in general, I think uh, being a uh, chess player helped uh, because you could generally do your calculations much faster or you could kind of uh, visualize proofs without actually putting everything on paper. I think it has helped in that way, yeah. So what about, uh, has yeah. AI influenced your approach to chess at all? Uh, not not so much, I think. I mean, I haven't played uh, I haven't played many uh, chess tournaments since I started doing AI. I probably played played like three or four tournaments. So, so do you find chess AI uh, interesting? Yeah, yeah. I think a uh, lot of exciting things are happening, especially with uh, these tabular as a learning systems like AlphaGo, AlphaZero, and so on. I I think. Uh, these kind of approaches existed before and they were tried on different games uh, but uh, to see it work on chess is uh, really exciting i think at the end of the day i still uh, see that these are only acting like helpers to the uh, monte carlo research right the policy networks or the value networks that these algorithms are learning, I think they're only adding as an extra help to the uh, MCTS and I think MCTS is still at the core of all this chess engines which hasn't, uh, which has, which it has been since many decades. Do you feel like this generation of AI has solved chess in a sense? Or do you think there's more interesting things that we could do um, in the chess domain or or in closely related domains? Uh, no, no way. Uh, I don't think. I, th I think we are very uh, far from saying it to be uh, solved uh, because we, we we still see this uh, alpha zero or uh, lila zero making some mistakes, and those mistakes cannot really be explained. So, I think it's uh, far from perfect or uh, far from uh, being solved. What do you think the reason is why it's it's uh, that happens? Like, is there? What do you think is it with is missing in the design? Yeah. So I think for any uh, chess engine, it mostly boils down to how much computation or how many Monte Carlo uh, research simulations you are allowing the engine to have. And despite having all this trained policy and value networks, uh, if you don't allow it to explore for enough, there are still a lot of blind ends. Even if it's foreseeing 25 moves, there could be something on the 26th fly that it missed, 26th move that the engine has missed. Uh, that primarily probably because the value network failed to predict that something might happen in the on the next move. These are still the corner cases. When I observe uh, some engine games, I don't think much has... There's a lot of uh, interesting games from AlphaZero. It has been very aggressive in some games. Uh, there are a lot of sacrifices. Uh, that's very good to watch. Uh, but at the same time, it still has those components or the drawbacks that the older AI engines have. For example, in a very closed position, it can't plan properly. It moves, it just keeps moving the pieces around without a proper uh, futuristic plan. So it seems to me that um, AlphaZero can only perform as well as the function approximator is properly approxim approximating the function and also only as well as the data. So if it hasn't explored certain regions or if the function approximator doesn't generalize enough or in the yeah. right way, yeah. then in both of those cases are the where the corner cases mm -hmm. will hit us. I've never been very clear on how perfect a fit 
the convolutional network really is for this problem. It seems to me it may be not the perfect fit. Exactly, I agree. That's another very good uh, question to explore. Uh, unlike other board games like Go, uh, chess has a very interesting representation as well. It has like multiple kinds of pieces. So you can't just represent them as numbers on a 2D map. So what people do is they use something called bitmap representations. So each piece is uh, represented in a binary one or zero in its dedicated uh, two-dimensional map in a multiple uh, layered three-dimensional structure, right? And yeah, I'm still not sure if it's the uh, most optimal representation to have. And yeah, definitely on top of that, uh, it's very unclear if the usual uh, convolution neural networks are suitable to these kind of representations. There's like there's definitely some locality and some spatial component that maybe the CNN is capturing, but also like a rook can move mm. all across the um, board all at once, and mm -hmm. so that seems like a CNN is not going to be very suitable for that part. Yeah. So I, I wonder, I do wonder about that. Uh, I think I think in uh, in Alpha Fold, Alpha Fold One used some CNNs, and then in Alpha Fold Two, they took the CNN out because of the the locality restriction of the CNN mm -hmm. wasn't help wasn't helping them because it would restrict the field of uh, to the to the block uh, the CNN block. So I wonder if that's the case here. Yeah, you'll never have enough uh, data if the game is hard enough. Um, so I wonder if it's, yeah. you know, I guess the challenge is how do you get the network, how do you get the function approximator to generalize without covering every possible position? And then I wonder if there's how to get that inductive bias that we really want, which seems right now, it seems very sp situation specific, the designing the inductive bias. Like, you know, I was, mm -hmm. I keep going back to Al Alpha Fold because I think it was really mm -hmm. interesting. They really baked in a very specific inductive bias after deeply understanding the problem. So a lot of the mm -hmm. intelligence is right there in the inductive bias design, in the network design. And I, I think mm -hmm. that there wasn't much of that in, in this line of work. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of open problems still to explore in this. I think I would really consider it uh, solved uh, if an agent can play without any uh, research. For example, if given a position, can a policy network or using a value network can we predict the best move in that position, which I think is impossible to achieve uh, yeah, at least not in the next 20, 30 years. I don't think so. I mean, you can play Alpha Zero in in only one step mode, I guess, without the full tree search, right? And it still does better than uh, it still it still has some level of skill, but it's just not that strong, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's very inferior uh, playing, and in such a case, I think there are too many failure uh, modes that can be exploited. So, I mean, it begs the question, like, why do we even need this type of, of structure, this tree search at all? You know, I, I gave a mm -hmm. talk a while ago uh, mm -hmm. to the data science group in Vancouver about, about you know, why DQN for Atari makes sense and why mm -hmm. the AlphaZero um, algorithm makes sense for a situation like Go. It's because, yeah. and, and what I was saying, and see if you agree with me, is the reason mm -hmm. is that the value, the true value function of Go is so bumpy and hard to predict that mm -hmm. you whereas in atari the value function is much smoother and easier to predict and so dqn is enough to master that value function but on the go side or maybe on the chess side the value function changes so much from any small move so the function is so non-smooth that you have no choice you, your function approximator is not strong enough to generalize into the future so the only choice you have is to simulate into the future and see what the effect is on the on the value function 
that's exactly correct yeah yeah but but if we had but if we had function approximators that were more powerful that could model the all the complexity of chess and go then we wouldn't need the mcts but the fact is we have you know the current generation of neural networks doesn't have mm -hmm. that property so maybe it's a failing yeah. of the function approximator we have to make up for with this mm -hmm. additional mechanism is that is that how you see it yeah i i still uh, i'm still not clear at what point uh, this function approximator would be able to solve that i don't see that happening anytime in the near future but that's generally true yeah so what do you think about explainability in in chess and these types of games like uh, definitely when talking you know so i never got very far at chess i'm not very good at chess but mm -hmm. i was very interested as a kid and I remember reading books on chess strategy and there would be so many recipes and there's a lot to talk about in chess strategy and people use yeah. a lot of metaphors and um, and it's not yeah. like people use a lot of generalization as they're talking about the strategy, even when you're talking about open and closed positions and end yeah. game and this and that. There's all these concepts that we throw around. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder what you think about explainability uh, in terms of chess AI. Like, do you think we could ever get to the point where we could have a discussion with the chess AI about strategy, or is that uh, kind of a ridiculous concept? I think it can explain why it thinks uh, why it thinks a particular move is good, but that explanation would still be based on the variations that it's calculating, and not in any like the natural uh, language that. That it sees that it somehow sees this double pawn structure is good, or I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, that's something it would that would be useful to have. I guess there's all this work now with uh, language models and attaching language models to everything, and grounding the language models and everything. And do you think if we plugged in a large language model to Alpha Zero, we could somehow get it to explain? you know uh why Cy beat it in the latest round <laughs> it's a very tough challenge uh i don't think uh, i don't think yeah current language models are that accurate to do that i mean it's not a lot of uh we need a lot of novel data to train such models on right? which are not easily accessible or within a reasonable amount of compute i guess if it read chess books and if it was able to understand the positions and somehow map it to its existing representation, and then maybe we could get somewhere. But it's it's hard to it's just hard to imagine. But it seems like what I've been noticing is plugging LLMs into the different things is working way better than I ever imagined it would. I'm shocked by how yeah. often it's working yeah. well, or there get people are getting it to work. Yeah, never thought about having an agent reading chess books. Uh, that definitely sounds interesting. Yeah. Is, so besides your own work, uh, is there other things happening in RL uh, or other parts of AI lately that you find really interesting, Sai? Yeah, so, so these language models are somehow very interesting. Uh, I, yeah, they're already working at a very large scale, and uh, I like these ideas on scaling loss as well, like what some amount of increased computation or increased network size or increased training data size can do i think there's this latest paper from uh, google that shows some emergent uh, behavior like so far a uh, language model cannot solve some arithmetic but if you have uh, more compute and more uh, scaling then it's basically the ac accuracy is increasing significantly 
and so they call this as emergent uh, properties because it did not that particular property of solving those arithmetics did not exist uh, when they had less compute and i want to see how far uh, the increased compute uh, would be useful in reinforcement learning do you consider yourself in the scale is all you need to camp it's not all we need uh, but i think it something we definitely need. Uh, I went to the uh, scaling loss uh, workshop uh, recently and yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, I think more uh, many people in the camp also actually uh, believe that scale is not all you need, but uh, it's something definitely that you definitely need. So is there anything else uh, that I should have asked you today or that you want to share with our Takara audience? Yeah, check out Cogment. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, and yeah, if you're working on multi-agent RL or human in the loop learning, uh, check out Cogment and I'm happy to chat more about uh, your ongoing projects on these topics. So is it open source? Anyone can download? Yeah, exactly. And it's easy to get started as well, I believe. And we'll have a link in the show notes, but just for the record, where are people getting it? Is that? Yeah, it's cogment.ai. So Sai Krishna Gotipati, thank you so much for joining us here at TalkRL and sharing your insights with us today. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, th thank you for having me. I think it's my first podcast. <laughs>